This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. You may recognize Daniel Aitken from his earlier visit to the CSM podcast. He is the CEO of Wisdom Publications, the publisher of David's books, and a close Kagyu lineage Dharma brother. This time, it was Daniel's turn to interview David. Originally recorded on the Wisdom podcast with Daniel Aitken, this conversation flows around the topics of Buddhism in the West, creative expression in the arts, and business, livelihood, and the art of everyday living. We hope you enjoy. Thank you and welcome everybody. Greetings. Good evening. So it's great to have you here. And uh, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the relationship between creativity, meditation, and different Buddhist practices. And I was, I sort of wanted to start with a recent project of yours. It was a project you did with your, one of your students, the comedian, Duncan Trussell. Right? <laughs> okay. But that's quite fun. And um, Duncan had done something with um, Pendleton Ward, right? And it's an animated television series on Netflix. It's called The Midnight Gospel. And one of the episodes, the main character, Clancy, uh, heads off throughout the universe in, ser- in search of a meditation master. And he comes across a planet and there's David Nickturn. <sighs> so I was wondering um, how that project came about. And what was the what was that experience like? Because it's really a rich, a rich sort of expression of Dharma meeting a highly creative medium with you know a whole lot of and you know a high, highly creative team. So I wanted to hear more about that. Yeah. So Duncan, you know, I've been playing with Krishna Das for many, for almost twenty years now, and producing his records and playing guitar with him when I can. And one of the great venues and you know, joyful gatherings was in Maui twice a year, you know, for the last seven or eight years we were there. And it was with Ramdas. And then also usually there's, um, you know, the, that Sangha, the, the Bhakti Maharaji, you know, um, Neem Karoli Baba Sangha. 
And then they also always have Buddhist teachers. So it's kind of like a, a little UN in paradise, you know, beautiful um, retreat in, in, a, in a beautiful resort in, in Maui. About, I think, four or five years ago, some younger, and when I say younger, I mean, almost everybody's younger than me now, but, um, you know, in the 30s and 40s started coming. And particularly, there were two comedians, one was Pete Holmes, who's quite well known also, who have, have done, uh, been on his podcast a bunch of times and hung out with, with them quite a bit, and Duncan Trussell. Duncan has a very, very well-known podcast. Um, DuncanTrussell.com, if you go there. I've been on it maybe four or five times. Duncan interviewed a lot of people who are crossover kind of, uh, you know, millennial, older folks who are spiritually kind of teachers, theater people, comedians. He himself is a very well-known comedian. So he's, and he, he toured with Joe Rogan for, for quite a while. And Joe was his mentor. So um, he, he, he's coming at it from a, a comedian, but he's also, a, you know, what I would call, what we used to call Captain Trips. You know, he's, he's the guide for the, a lot of people sort of tune into him to kind of figure out what's going on and get their heads screwed on straight. So, um, or not, <laughs> you know, uh, so he, he, um, got this idea to do this animated series. Uh, he brought on a bunch of people who he had had on his podcast. One time I was out in LA and I, I've been sort of coaching him in meditation for the last three or four years and uh, connect the view and the practice together, you know, which is sort of the job that we have, right? You have, you, you need to see what's, what the outlook is for why would you meditate, what the practice is, what the mind is like, what it's made of, and then also just putting it on the road and actually sitting on a cushion and relating to it. So we have ongoing conversations like that. And basically he just calls me up and we just talk for an hour or two or I'm out in LA and we hang out. So then he said one time, well, I'm, we're making this TV show and it was um, going to be animated by this very well-known animator, Pendleton Ward. And I know Duncan's gestalt and his creative thing, which is really outrageous. It's very cutting edge, but it's got a lot of heart and it's also really intelligent. Those are the qualities of it. So he created this series and then he just said, can you come and play a role in this? And then it dawned on me, the role I was playing was myself. And I think I'm the only, in eight episodes, it's on Netflix, it's called Midnight Gospel. The only, I think I'm the only person playing myself on there, which is kind of bizarre. So they made a cartoon that I, I guess sort of roughly looks a little bit like me. Yeah, it looks like you. You think? Did you think yeah, it looked like me? It's, like it's David, the meditation teacher. And um, then he, his character, Clancy, who's at this point is an octopus, comes and visited, visits with me for about five or six minutes in episode six. If you guys want to check it out, that's how you can do it. Netflix, Midnight Gospel, episode six. And basically, I'm kind of giving him med his character meditation instruction, except he's an octopus. Um, and there's this one great scene where he says, can you straighten me out? All his, all his arms and legs are all tangled up. And so I kind of pull them apart, which I think is sort of the role of a meditation teacher. Don't you, Daniel? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Seems that's the get, job. Get it untangled, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then, then people usually are fine um, on their own. You know, we, we Buddhists, we don't, we don't want to overcook the goose in terms of mm. trying to fix people up because we basically look at the point of view that they're not really broken in the first place. And so I'm wondering, you 
these these uh, episodes go for like half an hour and it's a pretty massive platform actually. And so what were you hoping, what message were you hoping to get across um, to the to the larger audience or, or what was, or when you watch it, what do you think is the main takeaway that you were able to get to the, to the mainstream? <laughs> well, here's what's funny about it. I didn't actually have the opportunity to hope to get any message across because I got to the studio and they had a script written. And they were kind of surprised that I knew how to read it and kind of project. But of course, I'm, my, you know, a big portion of my life is in, in the entertainment world. So I was in a very comfortable environment for me. And I read the, uh, the script, which had, he had kind of drawn from our conversations. I don't think literally, some of those were literal podcasts. Ours was like a kind of summary of the conversations that we've had. And so I was just kind of going along with what he had remembered from what we had said. And I was re-rendering from his memory into, into the conversation. And then we improvised for a while. We, we, did, we did a bunch of stuff. So uh, I think if you, if you look at the show, it's very dense visually and, you know, psychically, it's very dense. And our, our scene is a little bit thinner atmospherically. It's just a little simpler. It's just, um, it doesn't have as much psychedelic graphics going on around it. It's just me and this octopus talking about meditation. So I guess... My message is always the same as, you know, Daniel, you know, it's just keep it simple. Um, actually do it rather than talking, only talking about it. Um, sort out wheat from chaff, you know, discern the difference between something that's helpful and not helpful. Be kind to other people. Uh, be helpful. You know, I don't have any fancy message, actually. Keep it simple. I like that. And it's sort of, so let's dive in a little bit, shall we? And I was wanting to talk to you a little bit about the creative process and meditation. Both seem to need a lot of space, right? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, like, I love the quote, the quote from um, the New England poet, Mary Oliver, right? And she's, she's talking about her work and she says, creative work needs solitude, a place apart is one of her lines. And she goes on to say, but here's the thing. The interruption often comes not, you know, not from another, but from yourself. And she talks about this self within the self. And she goes on to say that, you know, this self within the self splashes into the pond of meditation. And, and you know, if you think about it, what, what does it say? It, it, says, it says things like, you must phone the dentist or you are out of mustard or, or so-and-so's birthday is two weeks away. And it just described, it felt like it described to me someone dealing with, you know, you could imagine that that's someone's description of them dealing with the resistance of wanting to meditate or, or you know, some of the thoughts that come up um, in meditation. So I was wondering if you could, you know, compare and contrast this sort of creative space that's required in yeah. meditation practice. Do you see any sort of parallels there? I do, because when you say space, we should clarify what we mean by that, because there's outer space. There's like, give me my space, give me some space, like what people say when they're in a relationship. Um, <clears throat> there's social distancing space. There's inner space, you know, like we think of our body as solid, but there's a lot of space internally. Anybody will tell you who's doing any kind of physical energetic work is to relate to the spaciousness between your stomach and your kidney. There's space in there. And, and so physically and psychologically, when things get clumped together too tight, 
you you lose contact with that sense of spaciousness. And another thing you lose contact with is from that space, all creativity dawns. Like what we call the great Eastern sun dawns from space. You know, uh, an idea for a song dawns from space. Um, you know, a emotion dawns from space. A thought comes from space. But as you know, because you're a Buddhist scholar, it's also whatever is spawned from space, dawns from space, is born from space, is also made of space. So in, in, in the sort of more subtle Buddhist teachings, there's the continuity of the sense of space and the creativity um, or the form that emerges from it. They're not seen as a kind of like uh, two different things and therefore you have a problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So creativity, you know, I, I'm, uh, you, you know, in the book, I'm going to get a copy of the book here. Beautiful. So in the book, I'm talking a lot about um, how to relate to space uh, in a kind of, by quieting down a little bit. Uh, and then things come up out of it, which is maybe that's what Mary Oliver is talking about, something comes from it, which could be a mundane thought like we're out of mustard to a sublime thought like, um, you know, the nature of consciousness or E equals MC squared. They're all going to come out of that space. So for all of us to find some way, it can be different for each person, to relate to spaciousness at some point during a day. Just let it be spacious. And the two other kind of qualities that go with that is stillness, you know, let's let it be quiet and, and uh, silence. Mm. So even though those are artificial and nothing's ever silent and nothing's ever still, like, cause your heart's beating and, you know, sounds are happening, relatively speaking to leave some stillness, some silence and some spaciousness. And that's what uh, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche calls the three pills. Take those three pills. That's, that's the prescription from the doctor. And um, so when you have had sort of inspiration, have you had inspiration in, you know, creative, you know, this creative energy, has that come from places of, you know, stillness and silence? And has it also come from places of like hustle and bustle? Like, is it, where does it mostly strike, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think creativity comes from not separating yourself from whatever experience you're having. And then you naturally become part of it. Like immediately when you said that, you know, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, first thought, best thought. I, I use that all the time. That's one of my repeat, you know, uh, rinse and repeat insignias. And when, when you first said that, I thought of a cityscape, which is most people wouldn't think of it as still and spacious and silent. But I started thinking about the sound of traffic and then the opening of, um, that Stevie Wonder song that has that traffic in it, living just enough for the city, you know? And so by merging with it, by combining, by connecting with whatever's happening, then you're being, that's the fundamental creative act is to, is to go along with it, to, to merge in and out of it. And I, so I'm not sure I agree with Mary Oliver, like the, that whole thing of like, you should pull yourself completely away from everything and then you'll be creative. I think the creativity is, particularly in music, you know, like somebody like Miles Davis or somebody like that. He said the whole city is just like, he hears it as a band playing, you know, it's got rhythm, it's got sounds, you know. And maybe Mary Oliver is getting at 
a type of absorption that you get into. So is there sort of some relationship to when you're, you know, we can talk about being in the zone and, yeah. you know, having that inspiration and then being absorbed in, in your work. And again, this idea of, you know, a place apart, space, but also absorption. I can't help but think when I hear creatives talk like this, sounds yeah. like a meditator. Except I'm going to like, now we're going to get into the Dharma. From my tradition, uh, which is very closely related to yours, absorption states are not really sought after or even, even allocated. So a lot of the time when I'm teaching meditation to people, the first cut is to say this is not trying to accomplish some kind of absorption state in which your awareness becomes separated into some, even if it's a very peaceful or blissful even space. Um, so Trungpa Rinpoche's instruction was when you find yourself in that kind of state is to disown it immediately. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, we know we have language for this. They're called jhana states and they're sort of uh, full iteration in the Buddhist framework. And they really can be very pleasant. But if you attach too much uh, connection for yourself with that, you end up in the God realms, you know, which is still in, in the samsaric puzzle. You, you're still trapped. It's a golden trap, that's all. Yeah. You know, what do you trap. want your cage made out of, like, you know, rotting metal or gold? It's still a cage, you know? Yeah. So when you talk about mindfulness in the book, you talk about clarity, intention, and effort. Mm. So can you talk, can you tease that out a little bit? Like, let's start with clarity. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by clarity? The two things that obstruct it, we talk a lot in, in Buddhist practice about how to undo something that's blocking the thing that doesn't need to be done, right? The, the, the real thing doesn't need doing. It's already there, like the Buddha nature or the awareness or Rigpa, whatever, whatever you want to say. It doesn't need manufacturing or fabrication. So we're often talking about undoing. So what are the two veils or filters against that kind of clarity that we're talking about there? Are um, They're called the two veils. And one is uh, conflicting emotions. That really blocks our windshield up, you know. Like you get in your car and there's like a lot of droppings from the trees and stuff. And you can't even see the road in front of you. So that's, that's what I mean by clarity is conflicting emotions. You're torn. Should I do this? Should I do that? I hate her. I love her. You know, when we're torn and, and, and really struggling, um, that obscures our clarity. Uh, you know, it's not saying it's bad. It's just saying it obscures the, the clarity. It's what happens. And then the other one is um, called the um, primitive beliefs about reality, which is, uh, one is um, nihilism, which is too negative, a kind of strong negation vibe. And the other is theism, which is kind of too much hope and uh, faith in, uh, it without any kind of evidentiary back backup for it. So that's what obstructs clarity. And so you cut through those, uh, which is you're not, you're, ca you're not caught in hope and fear, and you're not all tangled up in your personal history and your, you know, your, conflicting emotions and, you know, churning and churning, well, you then have a natural kind of clarity. Yeah. So I'm not talking about anything that you have to kind of add. It's just clearing the space to it. It's like clearing doubt as well, right? It seems like you're getting rid of some doubt. Doubt's kind of probably in the nihilistic side. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, that's what it is. It's like, it couldn't be. It's, you know, life's not worth living. Or no, nobody knows what they're talking about. We're all going to die. You know, I mean, it's, it's you know, all that stuff is 
okay, calm down. You know, nihilism is kind of excitable in a way, and theism is really excitable. So from the point of view of meditation practice, they both have too much excitement. They're too tight. And, uh, and so then this is going to be contrasted with effort in a bit. So there's this unraveling and clarity, but soon will be effort. And in between clarity and effort stands intention. So what do you mean by intention in this clarity, intention, effort framework? Yeah. Well, one of the th- <laughs> one of the things that made people laugh last night, you weren't there, but we had our, our little Dharma study group, the Nuji Sangha gathered on Tuesday night. And we were looking at um, a, a Buddhist book called Essentials of Mahamudra. So Changa Rinpoche was saying, since beginningless time, we have been muddled and confused and kind of overcooked. We've been overcooking a goose for like millennia in different bodies, different forms, different narratives, different storylines, but we just keep cooking the goose and it's our goose. We never noticed that it's our goose. It's our dinner. We're overcooking. So the idea of, um, of, of effort is that that's the momentum. That's the inertia. It's going that way. It's moving towards confusion. Look at your life. I mean, you get, um, you know, you, you quit one job because you didn't like the boss. And you, all of a sudden, the next job, you don't like the boss three years later. There's a lot of deeply grooved patterns that repeat, repeat, repeat. So there's going to be some intervention that has to happen to shift because it's so ingrained, those habits. And that's going to take, and you have to mean to do that. Otherwise, you know, I was just talking to somebody about eating. And he said he's eating too many frozen pizzas and, and candy bars. You have to have serious intention to change that. Because the habit is going to go, hi, I'm your frozen pizza. We have a date. Did, did you forget? And yeah, oh, I know I forgot my intention is what I forgot. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's why clarity comes first, because you have to see that first before you have the attention not to have it. Yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to see, and prajna, you know, the discerning mind, you'd have to see the difference. One very practical version of prajna is knowing the difference between something that's good for you and something that's not good for you. Yeah, that's I mean, It sounds place. like church, but, you know, hey. No, that's yeah. like one of the definitions of wisdom, right? Someone who's wise knows what to take up and what to give up, basically. Take up and give up. There you go. That's good. And we got the hip hop then. <laughs> what, what to take up and what to give up. You should take the discipline up. You should meditate. Give up the frozen pizza. You got another song coming. I oh, think. yeah. So then we are at effort, right? So we wanted this, you know, your idea about cultivating mindfulness is clarity. You know, you're an intention and then effort. So you're clar- you, you, you see these repeated habits in your life that yeah, are yeah. maybe destructive. Then you want to have the intention to change that. Yeah. Now this is, this is naturally leading to effort, right? Yeah. And how many people do you know who like meditation, who, who took courses on it and have been meaning to get to it for like 20 years? Most people who ask me, um, teach me to meditate. I, I, normally I go, oh, Maybe start with yoga because I found most people who start with yoga stick with yoga, but most people who start to meditate, many people don't stick and see, see it through. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, the, the effort is kind of true for everything. It just are, you know, I mean, if you are a scientist, you know what inertia means. It's the, it's the tendency of an object in motion to remain in motion and the tendency of an object at rest to remain at rest. And if you look at the in motion, that's our karma and churning, churning and rest, that's our ignorance. So if we're ignorant or very actively, you know, uh, churning out stuff, we're going to tend to stay that way. And there has to be some 
you know, game changer. And that's practice. Practice is a game changer. There's no way around it. There's no teacher who said, ah, oh, forget about it. You don't have to practice. And some teachers like particularly the Kagyu lineage, it's called the practice lineage. And, you know, the famous story about Milarepa just showing, you know, his bottom, that he had just calluses on his bottom from sitting. Now, um, you know, that's just a metaphor for like, you got to practice. So that's, that's going to be a, a, a no starter if you have the clarity and you have the intention, but you don't practice. And when you were um, studying with Trungpa Rinpoche, was there, I bet there was that sort of like intensity around, you know, walk the walk as well. How did you see that amongst that community? Well, for one thing, he just insisted on practice. And I'll t- now this is somebody, you know what it's like to have a teacher that you really admire, respect, and kind of want to, uh, you know, stay connected with. And Trungpa Rinpoche said to us one time, if you don't practice, we have no connection at all. Like, can you imagine if your girlfriend or your boyfriend said, if you don't meditate, <laughs> our relationship's finished, you know? So that was powerful in the sense that he also emphasized sitting meditation more than other Tibetan teachers have. Even to this day, to this day, the idea of just sitting, we had uh, Ninton which is all day practice, all day sitting, you know, 10, 12 hours of sitting meditation. We had week ten, it's a week of that, and datun, which is a month long. So there is no student that was serious that didn't sit for an entire month and not a lot of teaching or, you know, coaching or discussion groups. Uh, it's, you, you do the practice that way. So that was built in. Um, and I don't think anybody in our lineage would say, eh, you know, you can do this or you can do that. And it also preceded any relationship to tantric practices or Mahayana practices. You just had to you know, grind the mirror for a while. And what was the advantage of that system, do you think, where people were you know, sitting and meditating together for a day and doing like month retreats and really serious about sitting? What was the, what was the advantage of that practice? Why do you think Rinpoche? Because some teachers don't emphasize that as much. You go home and you do that right? You yeah. come and go to a lecture, but go home and do the meditation. Well, we were talking about it last night and uh, our friend Larry Mermelstein was saying that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was, yeah, in most Tibetan traditions, they don't sit in a group. Larry was saying, if they're in a group, they're chanting and doing ritual. And if they're going to go to, the, then if they're going to meditate, they go to the room. So there's really no such thing as a group sitting. And also, we don't think there's any such thing as walking meditation in the Tibetan tradition. I think that's all from Japan. So Rinpoche, Trungpa Rinpoche was very influenced by Japan on a lot of levels. In some sense, the Japanese culture was, I would say, the three real streams that came together was um, obviously the Tibetan tradition, which he was from, the Japanese culture, and British, something about British culture got him, got him going. So when you talked about Shambhala and the, the, the flavor of that, it, it, it was an odd mixture at times of those three cultures and American culture, which is because we were Americans. Shambhala, Shambhala, can you just talk a little bit to the audience about when you say Shambhala and what that actually means for you? Yeah. Oh, it means a lot of different things right now. So, um, but in essence, and I, I, I want to hold the, um, the, the deepest meaning, Shambhala is, is, a, is a train of 
thought and experience that has been embedded in Tibetan Buddhism and probably even since before then in other cultures. And in, in its simplest iteration, it's the notion of a place, uh, whether it's an esoteric place, like just in the heart or something, you know, just a kind of way of being, or a literal hidden kingdom, you know, Bayul, hidden kingdom, in which it's kind of a Mahayana society. People are, are not kneeling on each other's necks and suffocating them in the middle of the day. You know, that's not happening there's kindness, there's gentleness. You know, people have had clarity, precision, and effort and discipline and achieved some kind of, um, you know, better way of being together. So Shambhala is almost a me- metaphor for all of that, the best wishes of human society. And specifically in the Tibetan tradition, it's considered there was a, a, a series of kings of Shambhala Maybe at the earthly level, maybe it's some people think it's a more etheric level of the, of the world. But in 1976, Trungpa Rinpoche, who had been up to that point only teaching uh, this revolution of very traditional Tibetan Buddhism and really trying to get a bunch of people who are going to be able to carry it on uh, in the West. And he was doing that single-handedly because a, a lot of the other Tibetan lamas said, you know, you shouldn't trust the Westerners. They're, they're not really up for this. And he did, you know, he, he, for better or worse, he put, he, he gave us the, the full load. And um, in 76, he started having certain, um, well, we call them a terma, which is treasure teaching, but it's kind of like a download. Like sometimes you get a download, you just go like, Hey, you know what? Let's build the world trade center or something. You know, he, he had, a, a, a vision which came in the form of very short teachings, very concise, that were author, were certified as term or uh, treasure teachings, which is part of the Tibetan tradition by, by Kensei Rinpoche, Karmapa. They, they authorized it, certified them as terma. And what they were were these really charged, poetic, very poetic, very, very um, colorful and vivid and evocative uh, descriptions of the reemergence or manifestation of the Shambhala myth, you know, the Shambhala potentiality here on earth now. So it's like, hey, talk about joining heaven and earth. I mean, we all have this vision for a society. You know, Barack Obama had it, you know. I mean, people have a vision for what life could be like. That's Shambhala. That's what it is. It just means the higher part of the vision that we have. So, and this was a little bit more like a roadmap of what kind of personal cultivation and group cultivation could, could be started to do that. And that, then the rest of his life, which wasn't, you know, maybe another 10 years there, he really taught a lot of from that, that bucket, you know, that, that container. And he kept teaching the, the Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, but the, I personally believe that his special, uh, you know, everybody has a special offering. That's, that's in my book find your offering, bring it to the marketplace. That was his, was the Shambhala teachings. And if anybody wants to know about them in the simplest way, just read the book Shambhala, the sacred path of the warrior by Chogyam Trungpa. That's how you'll know what was in that, in that bucket. And, and I think that uh, these teachings, Shambhala teachings really have a unique way of bringing the Dharma into society and everyday life in a way. So you mentioned one thing, joining heaven and earth. That's a, that comes from the Shambhala teachings, right? And that's also in your... That's bigger than the Shambhala teachings. Oh, that's, that's, Asian, that's an Asian 
way of talking about leadership, Japan, that's very Japanese, actually. The emperor is the, is the scion of heaven. He, he holds the, uh, the heaven in, in European monarchies, monarchies. They had that view. Heavenly appointed is what they would say. It doesn't mean the person's a god. That's a misunderstanding of it. It means they're connected with that vastness of mind and they can overlook the whole society and, and kind of hold a seat in terms of what we call law or the above boat, like the potala, you know, that, that lama, you know, that word law means from above, like the aerial view. And we all, we all each have access to that. And so can you talk a little bit more about the joining of heaven and earth as in like the idea that, you know, how you can have a vision for your life or a vision for something and how that you can manifest that in and the earth side of thing, the practicality of trying to manifest that in the world or in your life. Um, yeah. And that's heaven and earth right there. Exactly. Heaven and earth. And um, so in the book I talk about, it's the first chapter because it's sort of the, it's the launching idea for, uh, I don't say manifest something first. Oh, just, you know, be a doctor or something like that. You know, I'm not, I'm not anybody's grandmother. You know what I mean? <laughs> be a doctor and make a good living. No, first clear your mind, open the space. Don't, have, don't think anything. Don't think about anything and just go. And then maybe you see something, you know, you see this uh, wisdom Dharma chats. I know wisdom Dharma chats. Okay. now. Here we are doing it. So between that inception stage and the manifestation stage, that's what the rest of the book is about, how to get from one to the other. It's not just like you thought it, it's happening. You know, that would be nice. That would be, that would be cool. So then it, about bringing that from that vision into, into your life, you talk a lot about, um, you know, contentment like there's these sort of like what seems to be dual things that are like dualistic or opposed and you seem to like bringing them together like content and striving for something seem to be at odds but you you don't often see them that way and so can you talk a little bit about that for, let's start there let's talk about the yeah. idea of motivation striving for something um, but also having contentment how do those two go together dualism is a disease of the mind. Not that things are not two, but that's not dualism. We also say they're not one and they're not two. You know that from the Madhyamaka school. Not one, not two. What does that mean? Well, it means dynamic union as opposed to static union. When everybody says it's all one, to me, there's a static quality to that. There's not going to be provocation. There's not going to be further inquiry at a certain point. Where's the curiosity coming in? Where's the like friction? So the idea that there's a dynamic process of unifying opposites, that's what it's all about. Look at, look at the world. Everything comes in twos. So even the ark, Noah's ark, everything comes on twos in the ark. We got, you know, we got fire and water. We got earth and sky. We got man and woman. We've got masculine and feminine. We've got up and down. We've got left and right. Um, you know, Okay, all the lefties, you, you go over there, all the righties go over there and never talk to each other again. That's, that's, that's not good. So let's bring it to your life. How do you go about balancing these opposites? So like, let's, let's talk about, so we're talking about your next book. We won't go into the, con, the content of it, but we're throwing okay. around a few ideas and, right. 
and we're sort of, how do you go about, and then you've got your, all the students you teach meditation to, you've got a lot of people, you know, that you, you could spend a lot of time just spending all your time helping people, right. In terms of one-on-one teaching. So how do you balance, you know, your, you know, having these bigger projects, writing a book with your day to day, you know, making meals, but also teaching Dharma. How do you, how do you balance those things? Well, balance to me is you feel one part, like let's say somebody's trying to balance their left and right arm strength, you know, like any good gym. Oh, your righty, let's just build up your right hand. You won't need your left hand. They look for the weak one and they say strengthen the weak one. That's how you balance. So like right now, my music's a little bit, I'm teaching four teacher training programs around the world. Right now, I'm in the middle of four hundred hour mindfulness meditation teacher training programs and i'm supposed to be isolated here but thanks to this internet thing i'm busier than i was before this all started uh so therefore i'm working on some music projects and they're they're moving into the back seat you know so i'm gonna have to allocate time that's what it's gonna be so i'm gonna take some time next week um and during the week, I'm going to not book quite so many sessions and I'm going to make sure each day I do some work on this musical that I'm writing. So that's, I think it's time allocation is part of it. scheduling, which is what Trump Rinpoche used to say. It's in how much do you care? You know, uh, it's okay to just do one thing if you, that's all you, you're not balancing, but all of us are balancing our home life, our relationships and our work life. Everybody's balancing that. So if one is suffering, you need to put more energy into it. If you're a workaholic and your work is going great, but your marriage is on the rocks, you know, you, and you want to, that to energy to happen there, you need to put time and energy into it. So I would just say, you know, strengthen the weak sister, the weak brother. So go for the strengthen the weak and then allocate time appropriately, right? Yes, scheduling. Scheduling. Okay, so that's a Rinpoche used to say scheduling, right? That's why. So, that's why I say it that way. How, how many? You know, Rinpoche did so many things, right? He's getting these downloads you've been talking about, which is just like basically text being downloaded and just coming through him. He he wrote books. He started all these organizations, a, a university. How did Rinpoche uh, manage to accomplish all these things? How was he managing these this balancing in his life that you saw? Well, when you, when you say all his, all that he accomplished, how do you explain that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's this word Siddha or Siddhi, you know, which some people think means magical powers. But for me, it just means you've really become aware of the potential of, of your own energy in the situation. And you're not blocking yourself. So I think most of us get tired because we're working against ourselves, not because we're working so hard. And if you're enjoying what you do, that's really important. If you appreciate the challenge and the exchange, that's important. And then it's fuel. You fuel on it as opposed to like deplete. So there's a whole chapter in the book that says monitor your energy. You know, we should learn how to like take our own, you know, that thermometer and Go, hey, you're, you're overheating here, or it's too cool. So, yeah, energy is, in, is uh, a very interesting topic, isn't it? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about energy, but you said something really important just before that I want to touch on. You've got to become aware of your own potential and not block it. 
right? Mm -hmm. That's was like, it seems like Rinpoche was very aware of his potential and it just flowed unimpededly, something like that. Well, he went through a training that none of us will go through in this lifetime. You know, he, he finished the kind of austere and severe practices of Tibetan Buddhism, like at the age of 12. And, and he was targeted like a Juilliard kid. And that's the analogy I use in the West. I go like, what if you were a prodigy? It doesn't mean you're a Beethoven, but it means you could be. And so they go, let's load this kid up here. And that's what they did in Tibet. And maybe sometimes it backfired. I don't know, you know, and sometimes it produced extraordinary beings. And, um, there's no doubt about Trungpa Rinpoche was immaculately trained, you know, and it wasn't his choice even. They found him, they stuck him into it when he was two years old. And it's like, um, you know, it's not the Western touchy-feely style of education. You know, you do it, they have much more of a sense of, um, you know, uh, disciplined participation being the norm as opposed to you question everything. Maybe that's the, Angle in the East, the, the angle in the West is it's, it, people are curious and inquisitive and they question everything. So somewhere in the middle, there's probably a happy, happy medium there. And um, he was um, trained and then stuff happened. A lot of people invested energy into him and time and energy. And, and there's that notion of blessings or empowerments that is a very real thing that you can get. Um, and... Then he had to go through a radical uh, circumstance of escaping and bringing people out of Tibet. And if you want to read Born in Tibet, that book really, people don't read that so much anymore. We all read it avidly in the beginning. Where did this guy come from? Where did this come from? But it is interesting, that escape route. Um, and then the challenge of being a nobody in India. He was a nobody. And then went to England. He was a super Nobody except with the for these British theosophists who thought he was some kind of magician, and, and but or a zoo animal more accurately, a research animal, and then he came to the Canada and then the United States where anything went in 1970 in the U.S. You could do or be anything, you know. And so in that atmosphere, he completely, as far as I'm concerned, fearlessly just he. You know, he had already taken off his robes. He was already married. He had already had a kid. And he was just wearing blue jeans and, and um, you know, T-shirts and hanging out with hippies, me included. And um, yet, gradually, he kind of emerged from that soup and began to re-manifest more and more of the kind of formal teaching aspect. But he had to take us along on that ride to do that. There was no way to start there. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So like for those of us who aren't spiritual savants chosen at the age of two, right? Um, how did Rinpoche teach those people to become aware of their potential and then, like you said, get out of the way, like not block it, right? How, does, how did Rinpoche go about teaching you how to be aware of your potential and, and to let it flow? Yeah. Um, clarity, intention, and effort. And I, we didn't say enough about intention because along the way, I think a lot of people see the glimpse, oh man, I'm just, I'm stuck. I'm doing the same thing over and over again, getting the same results. I think if I did this, maybe, you know, and, and maybe I should go into therapy or maybe I should go to the gym. For example, people go to the gym in January every year. They sell about five times more memberships in January. And then 
by March, it's cool because there's nobody's, you know, one-tenth of the people are going. So intention can formulate into a vow. And now a vow is serious. You know, you go, not only do I intend this, but I open my big fat mouth in front of a lot of people and said, I'm going to do it. You know, that's a vow. <laughs> it should be public as possible. You know, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm breaking my vow every day. You know, we take vows to uh, help others. We take vows to be less selfish. We take vows to, you know, uh, practice and then we break them. And But the vow has a certain kind of like, hey, come on, man. You said so. You said it. What kind of person are you? Can I trust you? Will you do what you said? And you're asking yourself that too, but somebody else could ask you too. That's a cool idea. That's a cool idea because, you know, you talk about the idea, you know, if you say the word vow, it's not the most sexy word in the English language, right? No. And, um, and but then when you put it like that, there's something, uh, there's something, la about you will use this word la about yeah. you know it raises the it yeah. raises your presence in the world by taking a vow so when you talk about clarity intention and effort intention here is more than just you know a thought in the mind i want to do this it's something that it's like you know something you declare almost that i mean yeah. this in the world and knowing that you're going to fall down but you're going to keep going and i guess that's where effort comes into to it yeah because you know, nobody has, this, as far as I'm concerned, nobody has achieved anything significant without effort. Um, and when we get into the part of the book that's creativity, creativity is an interesting piece because there is a part of creativity that's effortless. And that's interesting. In fact, it, it has to be effortless. Your effort is in the way. And that's what I call an inception. And like the movie, it just like it goes, it dawns. Holy mackerel, creativity, spirituality, making a book. Uh, making a book. Making a then book. you have to make a making book. Making a book to make a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's the other way around in this case. Um, yeah. you know. So um, I I inception happens and it dawns. I've, I've had entire songs, I've told you this before, that came to me in a dream. And literally all I had to do is put on the catcher's minute and write it down when I woke up. That's all I did as far as I know. Wow. Can I, can I pause you on that? Because that's sure. very fascinating. And I yep. think it might be related to the, the area we've been circling, circling yeah. you know, this potential, natural potential and getting out of the way, right? And not yeah. having it blocked. So you're, you literally went to sleep and woke up with a... With a Complete with, song. Wow. Yeah. Now, of course, we think we're creating a song when we're awake, but it's a very similar process when we're awake. It's just like, for me, it's like... I'm trying to remember something. How did that go? Oh, yeah. You know, that's how it went. So creativity is just like, you know, uh, goofy in a way. But, but that's inception. Now, what happens to that thing I just sang? Well, it just disappears back into the ether if you don't pull it down. You got to figure out, am I going to do something with that? And if I am, am I going to uh, do it for a business point of view or from a hobby point of view? So the whole book is about heaven and it spawns. And one track is just pure uh, sharing and enjoyment. You make Thanksgiving dinner for your friends. The other is you're opening up a restaurant. 
And if it's business, then I say, let's get down to business because if you don't know anything about business and you start a business, your business is going to close. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be borrowing money from your uncle to pay your rent. Yeah. So then um, how do you know when something's, a, your, you know, you get this flash of inspiration and creativity? It seems like you're, yeah. you're, you've got this potential that's been unleashed. And I actually, I have to ask a question. Um, midnight out of the way at the oasis did it come like that or fast not in a dream on a waterbed you know endearing circumstances on a waterbed let's just say that and um the whole image of just you know the sultan and you know i was we had a snack of grape leaves and feta cheese and the whole thing just went you know and maybe two-thirds of the song came right then in within 10 minutes then it's work. I thought, well, maybe is this a song? Okay, now it's work. Uh, I, I, I put it together beyond that. Then I have to go, well, do I want to present it to somebody else? Well, I might. So then I have to go into a recording studio and re- record a demo of it. Then I'm working on an album with Maria Muldor, and I have to go, you know, I'm with the producer, Lenny Warnker, and I'm saying, I got a song that we might want to do. I got to, like, get my face in the door. And, you know, in that case, I was part of the project, so it wasn't that hard. You got to figure out how to get somebody else to think it might be worthy. Then you get a bunch of musicians in and they record it and you think about the arrangement. Then the record's out and somebody, which is either you or at this point, somebody else has to market the shit out of it. Can I say that in wisdom? Market the heck out of it. You know, you got to let people know you have it, right? So uh, that's an important, that's an important um, part. And then... Once people are into it, you have to figure out, well, can I get them to pay for this in some way, which is much more challenging now than it was. Because now there's all kinds of ways for you to market it and they know about it and they own it, but you didn't get a penny from it. Like uh, songs on YouTube type thing. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Your industry has changed a lot. And like the publishing industry, actually. Yeah. Publishing industry is next because it's following a little bit in the footsteps of the record business. You can still sell books, but you cannot sell records now. Nobody wants a record. Soon nobody will want a book, if you want my opinion. But people like books. They like the smell, the feel of it, the touch. But I think know. it's different. I think it's different. I don't know if we should go into it, but um, yeah. here's the thing, right? So getting a song on a CD yeah. or a record, yeah. getting it via the internet, don't really change the experience so much. Some people will argue me on that point, but holding a book in your hands is very different than reading it online. So I think largely what you say is true, but I think there's some, there's some hope for books. <laughs> but here we are online. You know, I mean, you can put, if you're smart and you're in the casino, you'll put some bet on red and some bet on black. Exactly. Especially exactly. these days, because who knows what's going to happen to the physical world as exactly. people discover that how, you know, who knows if you'll need your office in a year. Yeah, these are all the, these are all the things people are asking now. So I want to get back to this idea. So you have this, uh, you have this thing that is just, you know, your potentials are risen, you're getting out of the way, and suddenly a song's just manifesting in front of you, right? You don't know where the hell this came from, right? And then it's much like uh, Rinpoche actually getting the Tama download in a way, um, if we can say that. I think there's similarities. Um, we could go into the details of what's the same and what's different, but there's the similarity is that uh, it's dawning from emptiness. But the notion of the term is that they actually pre-existed in the exact form that they're in. 
and that they're more they're like a composed text, but somebody else composed it. In this case, Padmasambhava or somebody like that. Yeah. So and it's it's different. Like what Dharma is different than songs um, sometimes. In any case, what I wanted to get to was that. So then you're like, how how do I go? Is this a hobby? Is this something I'm going to bring to the world? And you, and it seems like we're getting back to clarity here, right? We got to get clear yeah. about it. And also, there's there's a bit of a sense of self belief coming through here. You self self belief, believing in yourself. So when you were in the recording studio with all these big wigs, and you were like, "Hey, <laughs> I got something." Yeah. How did you get to there? Yeah, that's great because there's that that's such an important thing in the Shambhala teachings, in particular, doubt and confidence. And the confidence we talk about is unconditional confidence. So it's interesting. You could get there by like thinking, hey, I know what I'm doing. I've been here before, blah, blah, blah. But that only get you so far. So some kind of unconditional confidence is a feeling that you're, you know, like that, that scene um, uh, from that movie, um, we're not worthy. I'm not worthy. What was that? Uh, Wayne's, Wayne's World. World. Yeah, Wayne's uh, World. Well, you are worthy. But you're not worthy because you think you're great. You're worthy because you basically are good. And you can try. And somebody will tell you, no, I don't like it. And you go, okay, I'm going to try again. And that's, that's what we mean by confidence. It's, it's not like you get patted on the back so you get a big ego charge and you get, that, get up enough charge to, to stay confident. No, you're willing, to, you're willing to be vulnerable. You're willing to be exposed. You're willing to have some basic kind of faith in your own capacity. And, you know, that's hard to come by. Most people have a lot of self-doubt. So that's a big part of the path. How you deal with doubt. You said it earlier. Doubt. Doubt, yeah. And so... Doubt that wisdom exists within one. That's from the sadhana, Mahamudra. Mm -hmm. Doubt and wisdom exists within one. What does that mean to you? When you hear that and repeat that, what what are you thinking? I'm not worthy. Mm -hmm. It's the same. It's no different at all. And you are worthy. One of the things that Shambhala proclaims is you are worthy because it talks about fundamental basic goodness of a human being. No matter what they're manifesting at the time, no matter what confusion they have. And that's tricky because people say, well, what about this one and that one? Or this can get, you know, uh, we also have kind of a lot of um, respect for confusion, let's say. Like this virus, you'd be a fool to not respect it. And they're not respecting it. And then you go, okay, well, um, we'll see what happens when you don't respect reality. So we're not talking about confidence that's brazen or stupid. This is the earth factor, right? The practicality of the situation. Yeah, and it's also, then you get into like, for example, I mean, I love talking about Shambhala teachings. That's probably the closest thing to, to my natural mode of expression. There's, there's four, and everybody, again, you can just read the Path of the Warrior, Shambhala Sacred Path of the Warrior, and you'll, you'll be tapping into this and you'll like it or you won't like it, but, I, but a lot of people do, do like it. There's these four dignities, these four cultivations, and it's the tiger, the lion, the Garuda, and the dragon. And it's interesting, I talked to Alberto Violdo because they have four animal spirits in the shaman tradition too. And it's an de- increasing degree of sophistication. And at the tiger level, it's meek or humbleness. And that's the ground. Mindfulness also. You walk mindfully. You speak mindfully. You respect others. You don't brag. That's the tiger, of course, but it's a tiger, so it's not a pussycat. It's powerful. 
that is a powerful image. Then the snow lion is the one that jumps from mountain peak to mountain peak, which represents freshness of mind and first thought quality. You know, you're willing to like, yeah, let's have a wisdom dharma chat, you know. And why don't we turn it into, you know, a, a, a TV channel, whatever, you know. Snow lion is just jumping. The Garuda, which is borrowed from Indian mythology, never lands. The Garuda is like hatched in midair. It's an interesting kind of, and it's not a real literal animal at that point. So it represents outrageousness. Take the leap. Take the leap. You know, don't, and what it means is, no, you're not checking back all the time for, did I do it right? The reference point for confirmation. The Garuda doesn't need confirmation. And also the Garuda is startling. The Garuda shrieks. So it kind of like, you know, it'd be like a Zen master kind of sound, you know, which I won't do on the internet. Then the dragon is the full fruition of the path of the warrior. The dragon is inscrutable. And in this case, inscrutable is not hidden or, you know, playing games, but it's unfathomable. The wisdom is so deep, so natural. And then the dragon controls the four seasons. So these are beautiful, beautiful metaphors for how to cultivate good qualities. Uh, you can have others, but you should have, in my mind, it's great to have some way of looking at what's, what's the up picture for you. What's, what's your upside of your picture? And do you have a kind of method for getting, for framing that out and for living that way? I love it. Those, that helps with the clarity, right? Those four animals or really gives you something to, you know, to hang your hat on in terms of this clarity and, and what you're trying to do in the world. I, um, I feel like we're just getting started and I guess that's why our conversations often go <laughs> hours. Um, but I, don't, I do wanted to do one more thing. I wanted you to talk about, since we're talking about energy, managing energy and inspiration, I wanted to finish the interview by you talking a little bit about this idea of lungta, which is in the Shumbhacha oh, yeah. It's so powerful and it's so helpful. Could you talk a little bit about that yeah. and how someone might you know, bring that into their everyday life? It's so funny when we're talking about this stuff, I go like, this is really all I want to talk about. Maybe jazz or, you know, music, you know, is fun, but this stuff is so rich, you know, and you don't have to go like, well, I don't get it. You know, it's pretty, I think it's pretty accessible. So Lungta is a Tibetan idea. It's, it's um, part of the Tibetan culture, really probably pre-Buddhist, I would think. Um, Lung is wind and Ta is horse. Wind horse. So it's translated as wind horse. And other, I noted in the book, other traditions have wind horse. Pegasus is a wind horse. Uh, the the uh, Muslim tradition has a wind horse. I forgot the name of it. So it's this notion that the horse is a very powerful animal that you can kind of ride and you can connect with a feeling of motion and power. So it's a metaphor for the mind, the horse of mind. You put a saddle on it so you're not riding bareback and falling all over the place. The saddle is meditation, right? That's the, that's the saddle you put on the horse of mind. And then the wind is the power and energy when it starts to really express itself as unconstricted and um, you know with full, with full energy and potential. So that's wind horse, and it's a quality that you can, like all these qualities, can be seen, recognized, and then cultivated. And that's, so then it becomes a practice and it's called raising wind horse. Like, and, and the Tibetans would do it, they would burn juniper smoke and then the, uh, the other part of it, which is the dralas, the kind of magical sparkly energies of reality and nature. They like that. When we manifest, when we human beings cheer up and manifest, they come down on the smoke and they go, 
will help you out. And it's like mother nature, you know, um, and you can chase away the drawless, which is a lot of what's happening right now uh, in the, in the environment. We, we, we have dropped our wind horse and Rinpoche would say, when your wind horse is down, you become like a dudro, which is like an animal, you know, you become like, you know, and uh, you lie and you cheat and you steal and you manipulate reality in, you know, consequential ways. And the drawless just dispel. They go, we don't like you. We're not going to support that. So the role of, you know, the monks, the priests, is to help humanity to, to raise the wind horse and invoke the drawless. They, in, in Japan, that's the, that would be the role. And, you know, obviously also to be the scholars, you know, and, and to be the teachers. But for those two roles to connect, like the, the scholar and the citizen, you need to have some common thing, which is we need to invite every culture knew this before the modern Western culture. You look at ancient Roman statues and fountains and Greek, and they, they, they had this. They had a principle like this, invoking Drala. That is just such a great concept. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and all your experiences sharing and the wisdom. So thank you so much for coming on the Wisdom Dharma Chat. It's really an honor to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, and if people can do the series, I think that'll be a good next step. Yeah, so next step, you think, um, do the lecture series. The first lecture there is any, anyone can take it. It's totally free. But my joy in life is meeting other people. I really am. A, so if you're around when we're doing any of these workshops, my website is davidnickturn.com, and that's where you can see what's going on. And I like to hear from people. And um, So David, that's the best way for people to contact you. Go to your website. They can reach out to you there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, thank Wisdom. You, David. Thank yeah. you, everybody. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.